It's time for a WeChat workout. WeChat. Go, go to the Cliff Central account. Tap connect. Then message to show. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show. Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. You are now tuned into the non-youth show, which means we will be discussing everything except youth. So we are having all this youth day stuff shoved down our throats, and as important as it is, somebody's got to do the hard work. What about the other stuff going on in the world? Eh? So that's us. We will be talking, especially around the AU summit and and a lot of the some of the controversy that's come out of that, and also especially what's behind the controversy. What are we not getting um, because of all the noise and chatter that 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 that, that sometimes makes headlines? But what about the important stuff behind that? Um, I'm joined in studio by Daily Maverick Senior Africa reporter, Simon Allison. Simon, welcome to the show. Good morning, Kingsley. Afternoon. Afternoon. Happy afternoon. Youth Day. Happy Youth Day. Do you say Happy Youth Day? No. 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 Does anyone? I, I don't know if that's a thing. I think, <laughs> I think we commemorate it with respect. I don't know. Like a moment of silence. I don't know. People should tweet us. People please tweet us. What do you say on Youth Day? In the morning, when you wake up, you're like, I don't know. Okay, well, okay. After the break, I'll come back with an answer for that. But this is the non-youth day show, so we're not talking about that. We will be talking especially about the AU summit, like I said. Now, Simon, you've been covering this. I have been covering this. Okay. And uh, let me just say a very large thank you yeah. to Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir. <laughs> Who rescued us journalists from a very, very boring few days. <laughs> but I was on Twitter and I kept seeing Bashir, Bashir, Bashir. And I'm just like, what on earth, like what has happened in Santa? So I want you just to give us like a, a play by play. Okay, let's, let's, how do we start with context? So was Bashir publicly invited? Did we all know that he was coming? We knew nothing. Okay. The first thing I want to say yep. is um, credit to the South African government. They do not have a very good track record of keeping secrets, and yet somehow they kept this one. Okay. Um, and it's actually given all us journalists a bit of, bit of existential angst. Okay. Because, uh, for once, the government really has got one up on us. Oh. We have been asking about this for months. Okay. You know, as soon as it was uh, announced that South Africa would be hosting the AU summit. Now, this happens with every AU summit. Okay. You know? <laughs> every AU summit that's not in Addis Ababa, <laughs> the first question is, is Bashir going to be allowed okay. to attend? Okay. Um, a couple of years ago, the EU summit was meant to be in Malawi, and Malawi said, look, you you, you can't come, dude. We're not going to let you in. And uh, they had to move the entire AU summit. So there is precedent of him not being allowed, and there's there president precedent of the AU saying, and we're not going to have it unless There are other come. African countries that have said, no, you, you're not coming. Botswana, I think, is, is one of them. <laughs> Botswana always seemed to be Botswana on the right side like, of listen, these We don't issues, care, you know? man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> remarkably progressive foreign policy for such a tiny So country. the AU has moved the summit before to make sure that Bashir can attend. Yes. Okay, that's that's it's big. Okay, it's it's a big deal, and I mean, look, let's think about it from a less hysterical perspective. Yep. Why would we want Bashir to come to these summits? In theory, because these summits are where things get solved. They're where discussions are made. They're where decisions are taken. Sudan is always on the agenda somewhere. Or another, because yeah. it's always in trouble. You know, there, there is always stuff going on in, in Sudan. At the moment, there's a, you know, forget about South Sudan. Mm. There's a low-level civil war going on between the government and the rebels in the south of the country, near the South Sudanese border, um, with, with, with horrendous humanitarian consequences and a, a huge loss of civilian life. So this is going on 
as we speak. I mean, I've just, Daily Maverick's about to publish a story tomorrow, uh, from a, a partner organization called Nuba Reports. Mm. And they're reporting on this conflict in Sudan. And what they're saying is, you know, while Bashir was being, um, uh, the red carpet was being rolled out here, in Sudan itself, they were dropping cluster bombs on villages and towns in the rebel-held areas. And now cluster bombs are horrendous things. I don't know if you know much about them, but they're basically, they're not just one bomb. They're a bunch of little bomblets, they're called. And they just get dropped and they spread out. And so instead of, you know, one bomb one dropping, you've got these like dozens of little Jesus. bombs dropping. Sometimes they don't go off, which actually is what happened um, a couple of weeks ago. And now in this, in this, in this town where, where this cluster bomb dropped, it didn't actually explode, but now there are all these like tiny landmines around the town, this unexploded ordinance that might Jeez. explode at any time. You've got kids going around and walking. Exactly. And um, so I mean, uh, uh, what this article was saying was, was, you know, yes, Bashir has, has, has done all this bad stuff in Darfur. We're trying to pin him for that. Hmm. But in, in all that, we've kind of lost that he's still doing it. It's not just historical crime. Like he did this bad about. thing once upon a time. Yeah, it's not like he's you know now he's asked for forgiveness or whatever, and we he's moved on. He's he's still doing the same stuff he's always done. Anyway, so that was a long-winded way to say, maybe Bashir should be, maybe Bashir should be at those at these summits. Maybe he should be part of the discussions as to how to solve the the problem. That is a valid argument. I'm not sure I agree with it. But it is a certainly, that makes you know, that's what Sudan is on the agenda and we say. genuinely want to solve it. You know, it makes sense to have him there. <laughs> exactly. So, so there is that, but, but interestingly, that's not the argument anyone has made. Okay. So, <laughs> so you, <laughs> you put know, a, a, a vaguely I, decent I, argument I, I, that I, no one's I, making. Exactly. <laughs> I, will, I, I will freely offer my services to, uh, the Durko communications <laughs> department at a, at, a, at a massive fee. Um, so. Look, so so there is this thing that maybe Bashir should be at the AU summit. Mm. There is also this thing, and this is what South Africa has been saying, that actually AU summits are nothing to do with South Africa. They are continental meetings, and effectively they take place on continental territory. Like to the extent that one government spokesperson said, you know what, we effectively the Stanton Convention Center becomes – African Union territory, like the same way an embassy yeah, yeah. becomes territory of that nation. So this is what's happening. So, you know, Bashir wasn't coming to South Africa. He was coming to the African Union, and it's a very different thing. Then the other argument they were making, of course, was, well, he's a head of state, and heads of state have immunity from prosecution. There is precedent for this in international law. However, the Rome Statute... This is the treaty that set up the International Criminal Court. This is the treaty that South Africa signed. This is the treaty that South Africa normalized in our own domestic law. What that means is we've taken the terms of that yeah, treaty so we and we've actually made our own legislation mirroring those terms. So uh, this isn't international law we're talking about. This is a big misconception. This is domestic law that we are talking about. And the domestic law says, you know what? Uh, your obligations to the International Criminal Court trump any of those those precedents around uh, immunity and uh that's what the why the icc was saying well come on guys if he's here you got to arrest him yeah. because even even if he gets into the Samson convention center and that's au territory or our tumbo is not au territory vatikloof airport is not au territory the n1 is not au territory as much as uh they would like to consider it that for these purposes so i, I think that the the legal argument is flawed. 
as the judge the whole idea that the, the whole know, idea the, of the convention is actually just Africa <laughs> now it's not South Africa it's just like get out, get out of here okay so the judge is bold enough and the judge is bold enough to be clear and be like yeah the Pashir judge should look, not leave so, 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 until so, we are clear on what on so two what. things one is these are reasons for optimism are you ready I'm, I'm like oh man we never get this I'm so excited <laughs> First thing, civil society. Civil society were ready, yeah. especially the Southern African Litigation Center, um, backed up by a few other NGOs mm. um, with like, some quite high high level adv- advisors from from uh, other lawyers. They were ready for this. The minute, literally within minutes of Bish- of Bashir's landing being confirmed, they had submitted an application with the High Court in Pretoria. They had all the documents ready, prepared. They were ready to go. Um, and what they were saying was, you gotta arrest this guy. Yeah. We're gonna make sure that the court is saying you arrest this guy. He's not meant to be here. The court said, the court looked at it the next day, the next morning, and said, okay, I, I gotta give the state some time to prepare its, its arguments, but until they do so, Bashir's not allowed to leave. That was the first thing. Which is a pretty, pretty common sense, yeah. um, judgment. And they postponed the proceedings to the next day. By the time those proceedings were underway, on Monday, Bashir was already in the air. Um, so, which is quite interesting, and it's it's an interesting legal thing. So, so the government, South African government, didn't wait for Bashir to be. For the, the government didn't wait for the court to issue an arrest warrant for Bashir. So that didn't actually happen until after oh. he was in the air. Which means uh, what they're saying is the only thing that they're in trouble for is contempt of court, which is a much less lesser charge than yeah. than, than than violating an, an arrest warrant. That's that's their argument. It it was a very clever legal strategy because it just gives them a little bit of room yeah, to fudge to, the the PR. Yeah, because my next question is what is the role of the SAPS? Because I I picture myself and I think of myself. If I'm if I'm being charged with something, I I can't just I can't just go away. Right, I'm not, in my mind, you're not allowed unless you leave from Botswana. Yeah. That's what you've been doing wrong all these years. Kingsley. I could have to Just go to Botswana. You could have left at any time. So that's in my mind, in my my zero legal knowledge. You can't just leave because you're, there's a pending trial. So how? What's the role of the SAPS? What's the role of immigration? And like, who's supposed to say no? No. Well, until the arrest warrant yeah. had been issued. So so in this weird transitional phase where yeah. the court was just like, no, he can't travel. What they, what the court did, um, was the court got, basically got a list of every border post in the country and a nominated official at that border post. Um, and the court said that official, and this was nominated by, I think, Home Affairs. This is the guy. So if Bashir leaves from Bait Bridge, I'm going to phone Mr. X. Yeah, that's the guy. And he's the guy I'm going to get. Because you've nominated him. If he leaves from Oratambo, yeah, that's yeah. the guy I'm going to get. Now the gray area. I don't think that Vatakluf is an official border post. So I'm not too sure <laughs> if Vatakluf was nominated in those court documents. That's, you know, it's another loophole. And, and the interesting thing is, yeah. is, is, uh, Bashir's plane landed in Oratambo. Oh, and took off. It did a little, little skip without Bashir on board to Vatakluf. 
and that's where it left from. So it was clearly a way to try and 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 fudge around what. what so what potentially, there's no one we can call and be like, "Hey, John." And there's no head that's gone. John. And you and were and kind I mean, of the guy in charge of this whole machine <laughs> thing. And I mean, even if a head were to roll, even if there is a nominated official at Bartoklov, I mean, this poor guy, you know. And we've seen this before. We've seen. We've seen we know we how have, this goes. You know, it's got to be the lowest ranking guy at Bartoklov and be like, "Dude, you're kind of responsible for cutting the keys here." And fetching the milk, why did you let Bashir leave? And, and already what we're seeing is that that's exactly the route the government's going. Is, is You see the statement last night that said, the government is launching an investigation into how Omar al-Bashir <laughs> left the country. Hmm, I wonder how he did that. And some, some poor bastard is going to get uh, hung out to dry, probably you know locked up for a year or two or given a massive fine which someone else will pay and then rewarded with a nice ambassadorship to somewhere warm Jeez, and you say it like that i wouldn't mind being that guy that's <laughs> no, it's, 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 that it's, it's pretty good it could, okay. could be worth it, it could okay. be worth so it. it sounds like the saps and like immigration there, there's some gray areas about where they're supposed yes. to like Hold on, so that's but i want yeah. to talk about saps yeah because okay, that's, that's a bit really different. interesting okay Let, let's let's take the scenario further yeah. and say an arrest warrant was issued while bashir was in the country mm-hmm. okay what happens then who actually goes and you have to, like, find arrests him. him? Yeah, you have to go for him. And this is where it gets interesting. And it ties into South Africa's very messy domestic politics. Okay. The police. Yeah. Do we think the police is a nice, unified, well-led <laughs> organization at the moment? You know, <laughs> do you do? Are they all sp- singing from the same hymn sheet? Very clearly, we know they're not. We know about all the divisions in the police. We know about the divisions between yeah. NPA and Scorpions and Hawks and various acronyms. Because mm, might that be a high-profile, like a high-profile you know, as it would actually be. So, so who would actually be charged with, with doing this? There is a unit within SAPS called the Priority Litigation, uh, Priority Crimes Lit- Litigation Unit, mm-hmm. PCLU. These are the ones that kind of have the responsibility to go after High-profile criminals. Bashir certainly falls in that category. Yeah. Uh, according to a source we've got in the PCLU, they're desperate to arrest him. They, so they're know, just like they, waiting for they're, the they're, order. They're quite a professional organization. Okay. They understand their obligations. And if the judge, if the warrant had come through, they were going to try their best to actually arrest him. But now... Other branches of the police and South Africa's security forces mm. are the ones protecting Bashir in the Santon Convention Center. So, I mean, if it, if it had been. Because they're charged protecting heads of state. Exactly. So we could well have had this weird thing where you got one branch of police coming to arrest the guy, another branch protecting of the same him. police service trying to stop them. And are they taking orders from the, from the courts or from the executive? Exactly. Which is a whole other story. And altogether. now we come to the crux of the issue, which is the separation of powers in South Africa. It's very simple how it works. There's a legislature. Yeah. There's a judiciary. There's an executive. None of them have complete power. Yeah, that's that's all how it works. Them, you can't just decree exactly. things and like yeah. All of them have some ability to hold each other Accountable. to account yeah. and to sort of lay down the law in, in their own specific ways. And if the system all works nicely, then no one can get above a station. <laughs> now the system in this case, and I think increasingly in many other cases, has broken down completely. You have first of all you have the legislature. Now, the legislature, this is parliament. Parliament drafted, oh, parliament passed an act making the Rome Statute law. Okay. So this is parliament. This isn't the ICC. It isn't the UN. It isn't the imperial barons of the West. This is South, the South African parliament, which let's not forget is 60, 70% ANC. 
elected by the people. elected by the people. Parliament has said we believe in this ICC Act. We're going to make it into our own domestic law. We want you to follow those obligations, and that is the order that Parliament has given yeah. to the executive and the judiciary. Okay. Then you've got the judiciary. The judiciary has taken the case of Bashir and said, you know what? We, we, he's not allowed to fly until we've dealt with the situation. He's not allowed to go. So you're not allowed to, you know. So you've got two people. When you've got the parliament through the ICC yeah. Act saying these are your obligations. They passed that in, like not for this. They like, passed it just on, yeah. on the premise no, of what the, the country should exactly. be doing. On a then you've got the judiciary saying, you know what? Yeah. He can't leave the country. That is okay. an order from the judiciary. Yeah. Then you've got the executive saying, screw you. We're going to ignore both, both Parliament and the judiciary. The the two of the three pillars of the South African state just wash down the toilet in this particular case. And I think it is symptomatic of a more general problem where the executive branch in this country has far too much power. Because Parliament is such a pliant body, because it is so heavily dominated by the ruling party, it is not taken, it is not really the the originator of laws. What happens is the executive wants to do something, and they, they make parliament do, do it, it, and then they, they carry it out. So that, that, that check and balance is, is, doesn't really exist. Um, and then when, when the executive wants to do something and it doesn't have time to get parliament's seal of approval, it just doesn't. They just anyway. do it and then they'll figure it out. And then we've also seen the, the gradual degradation of the, Judiciary, and I don't think, I don't mean that in terms of the judici- judiciary is getting worse or less fair or less balanced. I think in, on the whole they do a pretty good job. I'm saying that they, their decisions, their orders are being taken much less seriously. They're seen as recommendations, and we've seen the, exactly. we've seen this player in Kandla and all these other issues. Exactly. Where a court says something, and the cell phone jamming, it's the same thing. A court mm. says something, and it's like, okay, we hear you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for informing us. <laughs> and it's, it's, <laughs> So it's, I, I, that's what worries me okay. about this Bashir thing is, is it really says a lot about where South Africa is as a country right now and it doesn't say any good things. I mean, I saw some very strange statement from the ANC. I think it said, I think it said the ICC is no longer, is no longer serving the purpose it was set up for. And I think that was the response. <laughs> well, I mean, at this, and is, it's, you know. Okay. okay. <laughs> Are you seeing everything that's happening right now? And it's this abstract, it's this abstract exactly. statement of, you know, and I'm, I'm hearing a lot of really false comparisons. So some people are just like, oh, what about the click? Then you let Bashir go. Some people are like, um, the ICC only, only arrests Africans. <laughs> Two things on that. Two quick just, things on that, because we could talk about this for hours. Yeah. It infuriates me. And, and the reason it infuri- infuriates me so much yeah. is because people are speaking from a base of almost zero knowledge on the subject. Point number one is that, yes, the ICC has disproportionately targeted African, sure. uh, uh, African figures. Yeah. Now, why is that? Is that because they have an agenda against Africa? Bearing in mind that the current ICC prosecutor is herself from the Gambia. Or is it because African countries, overwhelmingly, have referred these cases to the the ICC? The the, the Kenya case is a prime example. Kenya asked the ICC to investigate. (laughs) Why why did it do that? Because Kenya doesn't have the capacity to do it themselves. Yeah, and and often if the most senior person in the country is implicated, it's very difficult to prosecute internally. Exactly. So the fact is, 
the reason Africans, so many Africans are, are, have been indicted by the ICC is because Africa is the only continent that is actually using the court effectively. We are referring, we are asking for investigations to be opened, um, and we are getting results in the form of people being um, prosecuted and people being investigated. This is what the court was for. It's not Africa's fault that... Uh, no other regions of the world are, are using it as effectively as we are. Um, and yet, what our politicians are doing is, is twisting this into this narrative of Africans being victimized and persecuted. And, uh, you know, it plays into, into colonialism, it plays into racism, and it's, it's easy politics for, it's easy populist politics for anyone who wants to avoid the scrutiny of the ICC, either now or in the future. And it's, and it's being brought up by the, by the same people who are, who are part of getting their countries to be signatories to making this thing real. Exactly. Until exactly. it's your turn to go to the ICC and it's like, guys, we must boycott. I mean, I remember Kenyatta had a whole thing with the whole country and lobbying people to, to go against the ICC. Of course, Botswana said no, because Botswana <laughs> just do whatever they want. We love Botswana. <laughs> but it's, it's almost until it's your turn. You're pro things until it's your turn to go and answer it. It's like this. And then it's like, oh no, no, this no longer applies to me. No, but and the other thing that 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 frustrates me is is that yes, I agree the ICC should do more. Yeah. You know, I'd love it if the ICC were to open an investigation into Syria or Israel Palestine, etc., yeah. etc. Et and I think that one day it it will get there. But that because just because it's a it's not doing as much as it can now, doesn't mean we should just throw away. Everything that it is doing, you know, just because it's not getting one war criminal mm. doesn't mean we should ignore the case it's bringing against the other war criminal. You know, if we have a chance to get one war criminal or no war criminals, I'm going to take the one if I can get it. So it's 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 just that the whole thing is is it's a very emotive argument. I think people get very riled up about it um, because of the, the whole colonial and and, and racial overtones. And I gotta say, I think uh, President Kenyatta has a lot to answer for. So you think a lot of this can actually be drawn back to his a huge amount? I mean, I saw Kenyan officials wandering yeah. around Santon Convention Center yeah. with little Kenyan government leaflets explaining how diplomatic immunity for presidents works. They clearly had come in prepared for for this sort for of exactly the, for this exactly what, what what they were doing. It cannot be disassociated from the, you know, just to fill you in if you're not sure on on the background. What happened after uh, Uhuru Kenyatta and William Ruto were were charged by the ICC is, first of all, they got themselves elected as president and deputy president of the Great Republic of Kenya. Um, And then second of all, they waged a very bitter backroom campaign in the halls of power on the continent to discredit the ICC at every opportunity, and it has been enormously effective. So effective that at one extraordinary summit, the AU actually issued a um, statement saying, "You know what? We don't believe the, the ICC is fair anymore." Um, it, it's it's quite amazing. And South Africa has been the key opponent in that war. So that you've got Kenya on one side being like, "No, the ICC is it's bad." You've fair, got South Africa on the other side being like, "No, we've signed the, our, the these are our international obligations. Yeah, yeah. We're going to uphold them. We believe in international justice." That has been the case until now. With by by allowing Bashir in, what South Africa has said is that we are giving up on our position yeah. of supporting international justice and we are getting into bed with Bashir, Kenyatta, Museveni, um, a few others 
who really are, are, are anti what the ICC is doing. So a lot of it has to do with, with African superpower politics, I think. And, um, I guess, I don't know, maybe South Africa just finally realized that it, it will, it couldn't do it alone or didn't, no longer wanted to do it alone. Um, with Botswana, of course. <laughs> Botswana's Botswana. just sitting there like, guys, this is pretty clear. <laughs> I mean, for me, this just brings up this interesting relationship between the, the regional powers, the AU and the ICC. And this, there's this odd, I mean, because you want the AU to be, pol- to sort of be pol- policing people, but at the same time, the AU is made up of members and its members all start to change their mind, especially its powerful members. Then that's, then that's done, isn't it? it and we've all changed our minds, I guess. And then, there's something I learned yeah. this week about the African Union, yeah. and it's taken me a good three or four years mm. to learn it. So I, I want to share it with you and, and remember it. When people talk about the African Union, the African Union has done this. The African Union hasn't done this. They, you know, the African Union is failing the continent, yeah, etc. That, et that comes up a lot right here. It yeah. does come <laughs> up a lot. There's not really such a thing as the African Union that has one position, mm. one identity, one mandate. I find it more helpful, and this is what I learned. It's it's far more helpful to think of it as as two separate bodies. So under this AU, you've got the African Union Commission. These are the people that are actually supposed to implement any decisions of the AU. These are the ones that are at Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma is chairing. So there's her, there's various commissioners for mm. peace, trade, security. They're full-time employed by the AU, okay. and they work to try and, and implement any decisions. Then you've got the AU General Assembly. That is where the heads of state meet twice a year to come to their decisions. And and and, so, and subsidiary to that, you've got various councils like the Peace and Security Council, um, the uh, there's an economic and trade council, I think, but those are you know so there's the two sort of separate arenas. One is almost like the civil service, and one is the political agenda, and they can be very different things. And and so when we're talking about what the AU is doing, and I speak to the commissioners, um, I get an amazing sense that you know this organization operating on a shoestring budget. Yeah is actually doing some quite fantastic work, especially on stuff like trade negotiations and uh, regional integration and conflict management. You know, uh, Yes, they could do more, of course, but the AU is there. They are mediating. They are sending in observers, etc., etc. It, it, they're doing as much as they can with what they have. Then on the other side, mm. you've got the political side of things. Now, the, the political... The, the assembly is, it's a representative body. So that's 54 votes. Each of, you know, each, each country has an equal vote. Now there, there's, it's interesting this because you've got Lesotho that has an equal vote to Nigeria. Is that fair? Is that, is that how we yeah, should just be on making numbers, decisions before on you the even continent? get to just regional power just on numbers, yeah. And the way the African Union has always been structured, almost all African, uh, politics goes like this is, is about consensus. Um, so it's not about a majority. You can't just get a majority and get the decision made. It needs to have consensus. Everyone has to agree. So all it takes is one dictator to say, you know what? I don't want to, supp- I, I don't want to condemn Burundi's president for his third term because I am sitting here in my fifth term. So we're not going to do it. So that means that the African Union, in terms of political action, often has its hands tied behind its back. But that doesn't mean that the commission can't do very important work 
as well. And that's one of the things that about the summit was the Bashir nonsense. And it was very typical. You know, all anyone will remember about the summit is the Bashir thing, which is kind of a red herring because Bashir wasn't on the agenda. Sudan wasn't really high on the agenda. Um, the crimes we're talking about happened 10 years ago. It's 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 all kind of nothing really happened. He came the, and he left. He came and, and left. You know, the situation is exactly the same. Exactly. As it and was in terms before. of the yeah. business of the actual summit <laughs> yeah. itself, he was a non-entity. So he was was not, was not important. He took a picture and that exactly. Was so, uh, you know, it, it, but again, it's it's this this big political decision took the focus completely away from the work the African Union was doing. And and the one I want to want to highlight especially is the uh, the signing last week. Of the tripartite free trade area. Now, this is something you know I'm curious about because it's, it's, it's actually confused me. It sounded like just merging all the regional blocks and SADC and the East Africa and just bringing it all together and saying it's one block and free trade for all. <laughs> and I, I'm sure that's a, a, a terrible simplification of the issue. So please, please. Not, not really. Okay. It's, it's, it's pretty much, pretty where, much. Where, where it is. So you got, you got these three different free trade areas. Yes. Um, Southern African Development Community, East African Community, and Comesa, which is a community of Eastern Southern African states, I think. But Comesa is quite big. It goes all the way up to North Africa, okay. includes Libya and Egypt. So effectively now, what, so what they've done is, is, is they've looked at this and said, well, there are three free trade areas. Why don't we just connect them? And then we have one massive free trade yeah. area. So what they're going to do is, well, they have done exactly that. They, they've said that when the stuff is all implemented, and it will still take a bit of time to happen, basically a, a similar regime yep. is going to apply from Cape Town all the way up to Cairo. Um, and you can actually go through the whole continent through the new tripartite free trade area. Um, so it's going to drop. Um, so part one is to drop tariffs. This is huge. Think about that. You can get your goods all the way to Cairo from here without paying without any duties paying at the borders. Duties. I mean, so it's literally just transporting it and that's It's that. just transporting it. That's the first one. The second thing they're going to do, because of course it's not just about, um, actual tariffs, is it? It's about what hinders trade is also infrastructure, you know, the roads and yeah, the how, how water do you posts get and, it, yeah. uh, you know, um, safely and, and then non, non-trade barriers, things like corruption. Um, how many bribes you have to pay at each border. Do, so, so yeah. all these add ups, but, but stage one is to drop the tariffs. Fantastic. Stage two is then to put serious money into building roads and bridges and, you know, and it's, it's kind of boring stuff. People, it's not like this grand, you know, you build one dam and you're going to solve energy. <laughs> That's what I do. You know, um, it's, it's little piecemeal yeah. stuff. Um, I, I and, and one very tiny example, mm. um, is that, you know, the road, I, I spent a lot of time in Zambia, yeah. and, and, and there's a road between uh, Mfue, which is the village where, where, where I go to often, and Chapata, which is the nearest big town. Now, it used to be that that road w- was in a terrible state, and it used to take something like three hours to get your goods across. Yeah. Um, in the rainy season, it was six or seven hours if it was possible, it. and it was often not possible. Now they built a road. You know, it's not a very glamorous road. It's just a, it's just a basic road with two lanes. Mm. And that trip now takes an hour. You know, what savings does that give the people who operate between Mfui and Chapata? Huge savings in time, in energy, in, uh, in petrol, in just a, you know, ability to plan because they know that. Yeah, they know, they know how long it's going to take. That's a big one. All that. And what that's going to do is, is make trade between 
those two places incredibly uh, much more lucrative yeah. um, and so much easier. So it's small tweaks like it's that across the like continent. That. Now imagine we get a bunch of those tiny little tweaks going all the way up. If you save two hours here, five hours there, seven hours there, another two hours there. I mean, you could cut journey times um, dramatically very easily, I think. So so that's this part too, is, is, is fixing some of the infrastructure. Yeah. And people like the African Development Bank are going to be quite heavily involved in that, I think, providing the funding necessary yeah. to make it happen. The third thing is then to work on the non-tariff barriers. I think that is a much more difficult project because, you know… We've been trying to root out corruption on this continent for a very long time and, and it's, it's been difficult. But having said that, you know, the more trade increases, yeah. the more multinationals get involved, um, the harder it is going to be to pay a bribe. You know, if you are, say, a big company like Unilever or Coca-Cola and you want to bring your truck across the border, you can't pay a bribe. Because that's, you know, your company is too big t- to let that happen because it's, it's, it's too bad for your reputation, you know. So, so the more serious company, whereas if you're a small little company, you just need to get to the, you're going to pay the bribe, aren't you? Mm. So the, so the more big companies that are involved that can afford to take a stand against sort of petty corruption, that is also going to dissipate. And of course, they're going to be attracted by the better roads and the non-tariffs. So it's all a really encouraging step. Even more encouraging is that this is just the first step, actually. The, the tripartite free trade area is the prelude to something called the continental free trade area. This is going to link basically the whole of Africa. It's going to be one. It's going to be one big free trade area, which in terms of bringing up overall development on the continent, bringing up investments in the continent, bringing up intra-African trade, intra-African trade I think stands at something like 7% of Africa's total trade volumes. In Europe, that figure is 60%. So Europe mostly trades with each other. Africa trades with other people. And that's crazy because that means what we're trading is resources, essentially. We're we're sending them off. Um, We're not trading. We're not doing things like biscuits and hardware and, you know, those little things that – we, what we were importing all We all use and consume, abroad. but now we're importing Exactly. Yeah. So it all should be a good idea. Okay. But it's gonna, these negotiations are gonna be really interesting yeah. because not everyone wins in the short term. South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, Ethiopia, they're loving this idea because they've got established markets, they've got companies that are just waiting to go into yeah, these A lot of these guys have coastlines and they benefit you know, so much more than some of the other exactly. smaller guys so in, they're in Burundi waiting, or They're waiting for those borders to open yeah. and they're going to rush in there and they're going to dominate the market, which is good for the overall well, no, continental we all, we prosperity. All do what does that mean for your little countries that suddenly they have no protection? That, that border that was their protection, that, that allowed them to develop their own mm. markets – now that border goes and they're going to lose out quite big time. So they're going to have to think of some um, compensation scheme, which they are doing. So something like, you know, of, of taxing some of the trades so that it goes back into uh, redressing the balance between the countries. I mean, that's really clever. And that was my first sort of thought when you said we're going to make one big free trade area. Um, it's just how does it balance for the smaller guys? Anyway, if you're just tuning in, this is the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. We're just about to go into a short break and we'll be right back talking about what we're missing at the AU conference with all the Bashir chaos. See you soon. 
Get a taste of the Republic of Extra Cold at the Embassy event on the 27th of June at Nasrick, Johannesburg. This epic event will raise the flag for extraordinary experiences with Boys and Bucks, Casper Nyovest, and many more. With only 4,000 tickets on offer, get yours now for only 200 Rand at CompuTicket or visit castlelight.co.za for more information on the coolest event this winter. Unlock Extra Cold Refreshment. Enjoy responsibly. Not for sale to persons under the age of 18. Cliff Central. Good afternoon, you're tuned into the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central I'm joined in studio by Simon Allison and we're talking all things Africa Summit um, With the, all the chaos about Sudanese president wanted at the ICC, um, Omar al-Bashir We're missing a lot of good work being done And Simon is talking us through some of those So we, we talked a bit about the free trade agreement that they're planning And it sounds massive, it sounds like a continental sort of free trade plan That... that that in principle at least sounds sounds like it could really revolutionize trade and investment and and inequality across the continent. I mean, is there anything more you think we we need we need to know about that? We've talked about the the the, the, the little changes that need to happen. So things on roads and bridges and border posts, things like rooting out corruption, the the balance of trying to make sure some of the poorer countries or lesser developed countries rather are benefiting from that. I mean, is there anything more you think we need to keep in mind on the free trade area? No, I think that's about it. Okay. We just need to keep an eye out. They're hoping to have this in place, yeah. working by 2017. Well, that's really soon. I thought it would be one of those those random years, like 2087 <laughs> yeah, in yeah. our lifetime. <laughs> so this is a. It sounds like there's real determination to get this done in the short term. I think it is, and it's it's one of those. You know, it's not sexy trade and you know tariffs and this kind of thing. But these are the kind of agreements that are going to make this continent grow. These are the kind of agreements that are going to bring peace and security to the continent. Because the more we trade with, with with each other, the more income we bring in, the more developed we become, the the less likely it is that that we're going to be fighting. The, yeah, these I mean, small our fortunes wars, are just know? more and more ingrained more and more to each in, other, in, so interlinked, and it, it's just it's 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 a really positive trajectory. So you know, yes, the AU doesn't doesn't do all it can in certain issues, and 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 doesn't always say the right things, but but it is doing. Really important stuff like this, which is going to have massive long-term implications. Absolutely. I mean, another thing I've been curious about is is the sort of theme for this summit has been the Year of Women Empowerment and Development um, towards Africa's agenda in 2063. Oh, that's great. We've got the random year. Mm-hmm. But and I'm just wondering how how that's a bit cynical. But how how high up the agenda is the empowerment of women? Is it just a sort of nice theme, or is it? Are you seeing real determination to 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 have? to have this as, as front and center on what's being discussed during the summit? It's an interesting question. And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. I did, look, they spoke about it a lot. Every okay. speech mentioned okay. it. Um, Robert Mugabe, in his keynote address at the opening, spoke at length, um, uh, talking about, well, he, what did he say? He's, he's, he challenged, any, any, man, any man in this room, put your hand up if you were not born of a woman. Um, and the, the audience thought that was very amusing. Okay. Now, of course, this is all just lip service. So what, what actual actions are they I'll taking? Taken, yeah. And that I'm less clear about. I, I, I haven't seen much in the way of, of actual substantive, um, decisions coming out of the summit. One thing I did notice though is that all of the commissioners, so the AU commission, they've got this, this, this rule that 50% of the commissioners have to be female. Fifty, okay, and it was quite controversial at the time, but but they pushed through with it, and and, and they've done it, and, and they you know they have managed to um, achieve that, which means that in the 
higher echelons of the African Union, um, in the corridors of power, are these these amazing, talented, intelligent women making decisions, influencing decisions, um, and riding point on a lot of the the big developments that, that the continent is, is doing. So I'm I'm really encouraged by that. Like the the, the commissioner um, who is leading the uh, continental free trade area, you know, the push for that. She's quite young, energetic, vibrant, um, and, and I think she's going to do a really good job in, in pulling off delicate negotiations. I mean, I quite like that, rather than these old men sort of sitting around being like, how do we empower these women? You know, like, involve them in the decision-making, <laughs> exactly. and people will decide for themselves actually, what they need. Actually <laughs> empower them rather than talking about <laughs> But how them. how could we do this? Okay, so that's, I mean, that's nice to hear. So maybe not, it's, maybe not at the kind of action steps you want to see, but you are seeing more inclusion at the very least. Absolutely. And it, I mean, it is, it's definitely something that is being factored in okay. um, at most levels, I think. Okay, so maybe before 2063, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see something happen. Now, Simon, we've just got a few minutes left, and I wanted just to talk about your next adventure. You're going to be in Addis for a few months, hey? I leave tomorrow. Okay, you just can't get enough of the AU. When they move, you just want to move with them. <laughs> Um, by the end of this, I'm going to, I'm going to be the AU whisperer. Oh, for sure, man. You'll just be like, I, don't quote me, <laughs> but something big's going down. <laughs> I mean, but, I mean, what's going on for three months? That sounds like a hell of a long time to be covering this. So I'm, I'm sort of wearing two hats at, okay. at, at, so as of a week ago. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm still doing my thing with the Daily Maverick. Um, that's, that's front and center, but I'm also helping out the Institute for Security Studies. Okay. They're, I think they're, they're probably the biggest think tank in Africa. They've got offices in four or five African countries, including one in Addis. And they run this thing called the Peace and Security Council Report. So that's the, 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 the Peace and Security Council of the African Union. Yeah. They meet uh, once or twice a month. They make the big decisions on like, Burundi and South Sudan and Somalia, all the, all the conflict stuff. And this report just basically looks at what they're doing, reports on what they're doing, um, tries to get inside the, you know, the, the, the decisions, who's on, who's, who's saying what, um, yeah. who's for things, who's against things, just to try and get a bit better understanding of, of how the politics actually happens. So they've asked me to, to help them out for a few months with that. The guy that they had lined up was, uh, was, was called away to be the UN envoy for South Sudan or, or something fancy like that. So, uh, they were in a bit of a, but a bit of a, but they, they had a gap and I'm, I'm filling it. Um, I'm very excited because it's going to, Get me up close and personal with the African Union, yeah. with the people who make the decisions. Um, it's go- definitely going to help the rest of my Africa reporting. So it's very complimentary. I mean, how do you feel about being in Addis? I mean, I know you've I know you've been there before. You probably have a general idea of how things work there. But about I mean, being being a journalist in Addis for this for this long, and well, and, and issues of media freedom and press freedom. You in know, Ethiopia. I love Addis. I love Ethiopia. It is a wonderful country, steeped in history and culture. Yeah. It has fantastic food. Um, the people, everyone's friendly. Uh, it's beautiful. There's hills. Everyone goes running. It's it's just it's a nice life. It's starting to sound like you're never coming. Back. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my wife's worried about. <laughs> but I, you know, there's no denying that that being a journalist in Ethiopia is yeah. difficult. Working for an NGO in Ethiopia is difficult. The government. You know, and I, and I have been, been careful to, to praise the government in the past because it, it is doing a pretty good job on development and, and, and delivering socioeconomic rights to portions of its people. But on civil rights, things like freedom of political expression and freedom of media, it's got a pretty poor record. Mm. Um, 
I don't know what it's going to be like to work there as a journalist. I, I don't know how closely what I say will be monitored. I don't know um, how much danger I will be putting potential interviewees in if, if I go and speak to them. Mm. Um, a lot of that I'm going to learn from other journalists who are there and who have worked there in the past because it's the last thing in the world I want to do is, is, is go in there like a bull in a china shop and, and, and cause damage to, to anybody. So it's going to be a very interesting learning experience. I've always had the privilege of working in a country where my right to expression is, is, is pretty fundamental and it's guaranteed and I've never felt that there's anything I can't say. Um, but Ethiopia is different and, and managing that's going to be interesting. I mean, yeah, I was thinking of this, so a slight tangent. I was seeing, I saw Zapiro cartoon and they had this thing of Jacob Zuma and he's, he's got three parts in his head. It's like next wife and can't last day out of jail or something <laughs> like that, which is, you know, it gives you a giggle. But I just stopped and I thought in South Africa, you can print that in the newspaper and, and not fear for your life. And I think it's easy to forget that there is a lot of places you, you just can't do that. You can't insult the ruling party. You can't insult the president. You know, and before you get to insult, you can't, you, you can't, you can't expose the details of what they're doing. Even if it's not a grand conspiracy, you can't say this place has no road and no hospital and it's supposed to and it's their fault. You can't say that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we, we'll, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how things go for you. And I, and I don't mean to forebode things. I just think. It's easy to forget when we're here in Joburg, we're here in South Africa, and it's it, it is easy. It's 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 very easy, and you know you almost tend to sort of and okay, I've yeah. definitely been guilty of this yeah. of of almost brushing aside those those civil rights mm. because you're like, well, you know, if a government is delivering food and energy and health and that kind of thing, then surely that's more important than the others. But Or it'll follow. And there's a common assumption you know, that it follows. It follows. If you get the economic yeah. and financial inclusion right, sooner or later um, there'll be freedom of speech. But it's know? one of those things that's yeah. really easy for me to say, sitting in my position of absolute freedom of speech, which I in- enjoy here. So I, I, I'm very interested to see what, what it's actually going to going to be like to work in those kinds of conditions and and how journalists get around them because journalists always do get around them. <laughs> I don't know. you know there, there was uh, know people often uh, there's this phrase uh kremlinology mm-hmm. which they often use to talk about dissecting news from authoritarian regimes it was okay. you know, first about russia during the cold war it's often used in north korea people use it about eritrea um okay and rwanda and and and, and it's basically you know if a local, if a state newspaper prints that, uh, you know, the prime minister went to visit this person, mm-hmm. if you are in tune with with how everything works, oh. you know who that person is, and you know that 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 visit signals a change in the political. Oh, winds. so you know what's really going so on. You know what's really going on. You know, so so there's there's almost a, you know, all journalists, I think, even if they are working under yeah. really strict conditions, find ways to to provide little clues to to their readers so that they actually know what's going on. So you're going to be an expert in, in criminology <laughs> in a couple of months. You'll be like, if you read the headline backwards, what you really see. No, man, but I mean, we're definitely going to miss you here on the show. And, and we really hope to be able to call you in once or twice to give us a scoop of what's going on in the, in the EAC. Absolutely. If I don't say anything, you'll know. Uh, that's a message too. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's part of message. our Kremlinology. If you can't call Simon, that's now you know how it's going. <laughs> anyway, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for tuning into the Daily Maverick Show. Please, please enjoy the rest of your youth day. We'll be back next week as usual. Please download the podcast, share it with your friends, and subscribe on iTunes. We will see you next week. Cliffcentral.com.